This is the Scandal of Reading podcast. Join Jessica Hooten Wilson, author of The Scandal of Holiness, and her co-host Claude Acho, author of Reading Black Books, and Austin Carty, author of The Pastor's Bookshelf, for inspiring conversations about why Christians should be reading great literature. In each episode, the hosts will be dialoguing with writers about books they love and about why those books matter for the life of the believer. So years ago, John Wilson, who ran Books and Culture, he would always write these like favorite book lists. And I loved the way he set it up because it wasn't these are the best books of the year. They were just his favorite books of the year. So in imitatio of John Wilson, I've been doing that probably three or four years now. And it's my it's one of my favorite, most contemplative moments of the year. It's almost like a daily examine, but for the entire year. You know, what books have really changed the way that I look at the world? Kind of rethinking, like, what have I read and what has it has it actually transformed me? Which of the books that I remember have transformed me? So I make these lists every year. What are my favorite books? And I pretend that it's 10 and it ends up being like 15, 16 books or something that I end up listing in a, in a weird 10 sort of way. Um, so let's just, let's do less than 10. Let's do five. What are your favorite five books from 2022? I love favorite list questions. Oh, yeah, you do, fun. Austin. Yeah, you do. They make you, they make you panic and shake and convulse. Yeah, they do that too. They, uh, they they certainly do that too, particularly when you're about to record a session on them and realize you don't have them ready at hand. They then just, you know, hypothetically speaking, cause you. <laughs> Uh, I don't know, Claude. Why don't you? Why don't you go first? You take oh, a run I, at it I could, first. I could do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so one of should I should I just do one? We send send yeah. them around. Yeah, yeah. we'll do that. Let's, okay. let's do a circle like we're in a book club. Okay. All That's right. So this idea. is uh, this is one of my favorites. Uh, I had read this before, but I had not read it with my children because my children were not born when I first read this. And it is Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing by Judy Bloom. Uh, I read out, read out loud with my with my two sons, uh, eight, they're uh, age eight and ten, and we just had a phenomenal time. So mm-hmm. that is one of my favorite books uh, of of twenty twenty two. Book experiences was getting to enjoy that with them. A lot of laughter, uh, a lot of a lot of good times. It kind of follows an older brother and Fudge, the uh, the kind of wild, crazy toddler, and all his antics. And so, um, yeah, we just we laughed a lot. Great book. Shout out to Judy Bloom. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's so good. I want to I want to steal that uh, because I read uh, Freckle Juice with uh, my my now nine year old daughter. Um, and that was a wonderful experience, too. And I hadn't even thought to mention that. But that's that's fantastic. So that's not going to be mine. But I do. Hey, man. To that. Just because I want to say I read with my kids, too. <laughs> It's not just you. Um, uh, no, I, I the first one that comes to mind for me um, was uh, Richard Powers' uh, Pulitzer-winning novel, The Overstory. Hmm. Uh, I think it won the Pulitzer in 18, maybe 17 or 18. Somebody can go fact check me on that. But it's a great book. Um, and um, there's I, I think that it's President Obama uh, is who um, on the dust jacket had had given it this review if not somebody else but i think it was president obama but it said i'll i'll never look at trees the same way again and Mm. 
I say that simply because that was my experience and has been my experience with the book too. Uh, it's about 650 pages with a really, really good, you know, kind of plot and narrative to it. But ultimately at its, at, at its root, avoid the pun, uh, it's about kind of the secret life of trees. Um, oh, and cool. uh, that might not sound riveting, but I assure you it is. It's well worth wow, it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. A riveting book on trees. Like, no, you're right. I would be very hesitant I was too, but it was well worth the time. So, okay. So now I want to comment on both of yours and I'll just, I'll take two and they're not on my favorite book list, which um, as Claude knows, came out of my newsletter. So I'm just adding to my favorite books of the year and just like making it an even longer list. But uh, my kids and I, we read all of the SD Smith tales. Like his, yeah, you're nodding your head. You know, you know these stories. I know those the Green Ember Green Ember yeah, series, yeah. right? Yeah, we we have them. Um, we have them in a box, ready to be read soon. But we haven't oh, jumped in. We're goodness. eagerly awaiting. Yeah. Oh, so okay, so so Smith and I, so Sam, he we were on a session together at the Anselm Conference in twenty twenty one fall, I think. And um, so we did this Imagination Redeemed session. And so we had never read each other's work. So he's like, yeah, I'll send you one of my books. I was like, that's really great. He sent a box with all of his books and like wooden swords for the kids and green ember necklaces for my daughters. And my children have entered that world so fully from that experience. Mm. I mean, they opened the box and just entered the world. And we just, we read all of the stories they loved the characters. I mean, it, it is, it's some of the best books I've read to them since the Hobbit. So um, wow. that really just took over our family. And even we would be somewhere, I don't know if it was at church or somewhere where the kids are like, Oh, that's like carrying the flame or, you know, they'll, they'll refer to the characters as this like world that our family knows, like this experience our family has had together, which is kind of neat. That so, is, that's awesome. I'll have to check those out. <laughs> Yeah, so, I'm not so, familiar with them. So oh, so good. So good. So I'm going to say like some of my favorite books this year have been reading all of the Green Ember series. Um, then thinking about like a long novel that I was really hesitant. I had put it on, I had agreed to write a book review of it because I knew it would force me to read it. And mm. a lot of people had recommended it to me for a long time. The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni, which is from, it's from the 19th century, but it's set in the 1600s during the plague in Milan. So, of course, it's like one of those novels that everyone in 2020 was like, oh, we should read this plague novel. And then you buy it and it's like 700 pages and you're like, or I'll just put it on my shelf and it looks really nice. <laughs> um, and then I started really reading it and it's so moving. It's like Dostoevsky or War and Peace or Les Mis Rob. I mean, it's huge in scope and in spiritual urgency and in the, the realness and the authenticity of the characters and like you can't, you can't put it down even, even with it being that big. Like I just found myself reading it everywhere I went um, and not wanting to put it down. So it, it dominated a good two or three months of my time to read this book, but it was incredibly worth it. So, and it's definitely lingered for that reason as like a favorite for, for 2022. Mm. So. That's good. I'll take two as well. Um, I will mention, uh, this was a weird year for me in terms, I didn't read as many novels as I, as I normally would like to read. And then the few that I did read, I, I didn't, um, 
I didn't like, uh, I wanted to like, but I, they just didn't work for me. Oh, that's uh, another question I'm going to ask you in a minute. I want to know what books you thought uh, you would <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going on record about these things. Um, no, I'll, I'll answer that. Um, yeah, so it was it, but the novel that I, that I enjoyed the most or that I found the most moving uh, is one, Jessica, you've written about. Uh, it was my first time reading it. It was Love in the Ruins by Walker Percy. Uh, I had not read that before, and um, I just found it uh, timely, timeless, um, you know, strange, funny, odd, and then, and, and particularly in the ending, very moving. So it's about a, um, a lapsed uh, Roman Catholic kind of doctor scientist that kind of discovers a way to um, determine the real sickness at the core of the human heart, and then he wants to kind of get this work published, and it's kind of the kind of the end of the world is happening um in the south and uh it just it's su- surprisingly um insightful work and i know jessica you have you could say much more about it that was the novel i enjoyed the most this year the other uh my, my second uh that i'll mention is um heavenly participation by hans borsma um i think jessica's reaching for it right now there it is. Yeah, the weaving of a sacramental tapestry. Um, this was a this was a, a a really powerful book for me, and I think it um, it came at the right time with some um, um, development in my own my own thinking and just sort of um, um, yeah, just having a, a deeper understanding of um, sacramental theology and God's presence um, in the world and in the church um, and uh, and all all of all that that means. So. Those would be the two, you know, my next two that I really enjoyed the best novel. And then I think the theological work that I read, that'll probably have the biggest shape uh, and impact mm-hmm. on my, on my thinking and, um, and work as a pastor. Okay. Claude, I'm telling you, I'm about to go up to Neshota house and spend the week with Borsma. We're going to be studying this Christian Platonism. Cool. Send me your notes. Cool. <laughs> I don't have to do it. Cause you're going. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. I love it. You. Okay, yeah, I'll go ahead and do two as well. Um, uh, Jonathan Franzen's new novel, Crossroads, uh, was very good. Franzen's one of the few novelists that um, when I know that one of his novels is coming out, I am at the bookstore to buy it the day it's released. For some reason, I don't do um, kind of an advanced order copy, uh, and I don't order it online. Uh, I have kind of a history of being there and buying his books. I do this with Marilyn Robinson. I know that's another conversation we can have at another time, Jessica. Um, But um, there are a few authors that uh, I've always made it a point to buy their book the day that it's, you know, first available Mm -hmm. in my bookstore. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that with friends. And and it's it's usually authors like friends and Robinson who, you know, will go seven to 10 years before releasing wow. a new one. Mm-hmm. Um, but so uh, his, his book came out this year and um, I thought it was very good. And it's uh, the first uh, reportedly in a trilogy. So I'm, I'm happy oh, for that. Cool. Um, so that, that novel was, was um, good for many reasons, not least it centers around um, uh, the life of a minister, which I found uh, particularly interesting uh, to, to have friends and kind of riff on, on that. Um, and then, um, uh, I'll, I'll give a, a work of nonfiction too, since we're a little fiction heavy right now, Andy Root's book, uh, churches in the crisis of decline. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a big Andy Root fan. He's, he's kind of marked my ministry in a pretty big way in the last five years. So I'm always quick to read anything that, that, um, uh, he writes. Um, and so that's, that's been one of the best works of nonfiction I've read this, this year. Oh, Fantastic. 
Yeah, nonfiction, you know, I've been in this Christian Platonism class. So I got to read The Biblical Cosmos by Robin Perry, hmm. which was just mind altering. I mean, I, I was reading it thinking I had already read the Bible before. <laughs> and then you read it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's not the Bible I've read. <laughs> it's like, wow, it does this paradigm shift because it it takes all of the Old Testament and it's contextualizing it within the the myths and the assumptions of the Hebraic world, but then also the Assyrian and Babylonian and Canaanite myths that would have influenced them, that they have, would have been countering, right? Wow. In their depictions of God and in their depictions of the world. And it does the same thing when it goes up into the New Testament. You know, what are some of the, the Roman ways of viewing the world that they would have been countering with the depictions that they have of the world? Um, and how are they drawing on the Old Testament and kind of transfiguring it in light of the Messiah when they write the new Testament. So it's just, it's, and it's very short. It's funny. It's got a great voice to it. And it has a lot of like illustrations. And um, it's just one of those books where you, it doesn't feel like a textbook to read it. Uh, but at the same time, it, it feels like you've gone through a course after you're reading it. I'm going to buy that. Yeah. It's really good. <laughs> That's <looks> fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's definitely worthwhile. The, the epigraphs alone are worthwhile because it's, or not epigraphs, the, um, endorsements in the beginning because mm -hmm. the endorsements are like by Martin Luther and Van Gogh. Okay. <laughs> Having some fun. <laughs> so yeah. So the author is just, uh, just, yeah, really doesn't take the academic part of it too seriously, but is definitely a, a thorough thinking academic too. So mm -hmm. I yeah. Like that. Yeah. It's yeah. worth getting. So my last two, um, one novel, uh, the Outsider by Richard Wright. So this is a novel that he wrote um, when he left uh, the States and was in was in Paris. Um, he's you know most known for uh, for Native Son, uh, but The Outsider I, I hadn't, it's really long. It's probably too long. It's been like five hundred pages, um, and it's kind of picking up the same sort of themes that he's he's dealt with a sort of uh, um, a black man kind of on the outskirts of society and trying to kind of forcefully find his way uh, to meaning and purpose. It's definitely the most philosophical of his novels. It is um, pretty, vi pretty violent and, um, and, and bleak, but I, I found it really fascinating. And um, as somebody who really enjoys Richard Wright's work as much as you can enjoy, you know, sort of forceful <laughs> kind of brutalizing writing. Uh, I, I, I just, it just, it was a meaningful read for me. And it was one of those that I, I grabbed from the library on like a Friday and then just somehow cranked through and finished on like a Sunday. So that's how I know a novel is also working for me when it, it's just, I mean, it's, it's in my hand everywhere I'm going. Uh, my last one is called Praying the Bible by Mariano Magrassi. Um, and it's a book on uh, Lectio Divina, on um, sacred reading of scripture. I mean, it's a it's it's a wonderful. This person is drawing from so many different um, uh, theological sources to just talk about the beauty of the Bible and the beauty of reading the Bible um, as as a true encounter with God as a scripture. Uh, so it might be one of my favorite books, shorter accessible books on the Bible itself. Uh, so it was the type of book that I read and loved the quotes, loved the insights, and just made me want to read the Bible more. So that's that's a mark of a good book. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Well, um, I reread this year for the first time in a long time, Wendell Berry's Hannah Coulter. Hmm. 
And I want to mention it because of the impression that this reading of it made on me. Um, as somebody who loves Barry and has read most of his work, I had for years told folks that the novel to read to begin with was The Memory of Old Jack. And I still stand by that as a great recommendation. But having reread Hannah Coulter this year, uh, it is every bit as worthy uh, um, of, of being the one to tell somebody to go to. Um, it's emphasis on place and rootedness and um, the interconnectedness of, of a true vibrant community and all the, all the kind of standard important themes that have made Wendell Berry, Wendell Berry mm-hmm. for the, for the culture um, are so present and it's such a powerful and moving uh, novel and it's, um, and so distilled too, you know, it's a, it's 170 pages or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just so taken with that rereading of that novel that I'd be remiss not to mention it because I've thought about it so many times since rereading it. Um, I do want to just give a quick nod to Jennifer Egan's book, The Candy House. It was really good, but I don't want to belabor it because I want to cheat for my last one and uh, say, because I mean it sincerely, uh, both of your books, um, <laughs> both for both for how, how, how good they are and how important they are for the church. And also because it is really what enabled the three of us to become friends. And that has been uh, a real gift to me this year. Um, to get to read y'all's work and then on top of that to get to know y'all and, and get to do chats like these has been a great joy and gift to me. So I'm going to sneak both of your books in for my uh, for my last pick. There. That is kind. Thank you, man. <laughs> That's really sweet, Austin. Well, I can't, you know, I cannot think of a better way to end than to say like, yeah, go read Pastor's Bookshelf or reading great, you know, black books or, or The Scandal of Holiness. Um, and for right now, stay tuned for another great interview. This podcast is sponsored by Brazos Press. Brazos Press publishes books that creatively draw upon the riches of the Christian story to deepen our understanding of God's world and inspire faithful reflection and engagement. A Brazos Press book that I recommend is the August 2023 release, The Evangelical Imagination, How Stories, Images, and Metaphors Created a Culture in Crisis by Karen Swallow Pryor. In the book, Pryor analyzes the literature, art, and popular culture that has surrounded evangelicalism. She unpacks the movement's most deeply held concepts, ideas, values, and practices to consider what is Christian rather than merely cultural. Pre-order now and get 40% off and free shipping at BakerBookhouse.com. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. So on today's episode of The Scandal of Reading, I'm really excited because I get to interview a friend and get to have a conversation about something that we both love, which is poetry. And both of us coming from a place of reading the Bible and then hopefully trying to understand poetry through it and then reading poetry and it helps us read the Bible. And we come from very similar places. And I know this because I interviewed Matt when his book came out in 2021, uh, Enjoying the Bible. 
We're going to talk a little bit about the book, but mostly we're going to talk about a poet, Anne Bradstreet. You may have read her in school. You may have read her in your Norton anthology. Uh, and I'm, I've asked Matt today to unpack and make us fall in love with Anne Bradstreet. So Matt, would you first just introduce yourself and then go ahead and talk about your book a little bit. Explain why you wrote this book. Yeah, my name's Matt Mullins, and I am an associate professor of English and also history of ideas at the college at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, where I've been uh, full-time since 2012. But actually, I'm the only full-time faculty here who graduated from our college. Mm. So it's really cool opportunity to have gone through that kind of history of ideas, which is a very kind of classical uh, education, liberal arts education, and now to have the opportunity from an English perspective to come in and teach those classes alongside my like survey of American literature and stuff like that. I wrote Enjoying the Bible over the course of a couple of years, kind of in response to my time in the classroom here amongst a lot of Christians who love the Bible, and yet oftentimes I found read it and approach it very differently than they would approach the literature in my classes. And the more I encountered that kind of dissonance in my students, the more I saw it in myself. And so I wrote this book for people, mainly like me uh, and my students, my family, my colleagues, who've been oftentimes conditioned to read the Bible almost exclusively for a very narrow kind of instruction, uh, like information and instruction that's so narrow that I think we've dramatically limited our ability to derive pleasure from reading the Bible. And as a result of that, we look for the kind of readerly pleasure that we might derive from the Bible almost exclusively in other sources, with Netflix or, you know, some new show on Amazon Prime or even good things. Uh, Movies can be good. Music can be good. Novels can be good. I'm I'm in favor of all those things. Um, But I think we don't look for that kind of pleasure as much in the Bible, which means we end up looking for it elsewhere which means those parts of our souls and our lives end up getting formed as much or more by, you know, Amazon or Netflix Mm -hmm. as they do by the word of God. And so I'm not trying to cut Amazon out of our lives or Netflix. uh, And I'm not trying to say that the Bible doesn't have any type of information or instruction to offer us. But what I am trying to do in the book is just provide some strategies and ways of reading the Bible that might actually get us to look for the kinds of enjoyment and pleasure in it that we typically look for in other places. Maybe if we do that, if we enjoy it more, we'll read it more. Maybe if we read it more, we will take on the spirit of God more. Maybe if we do that, we'll love God. We'll love each other a little better. It's kind of the grand design of the book. Uh, so, so good. Amen. Well, I was thinking while you're talking about instructions and like treating the Bible like that. I know we've already done a whole nother interview, Christianity Today. You guys can go find it um, in which Matt and I kind of dialogue about this, this topic. But I was thinking about that song, Basic Instructions. You know that song, Basic Instructions Before, what is it? Basic yeah, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. That's uh, Before Leaving Earth, there it is. Ah! <laughs> the I'm trying idea. to remember the name. Uh, uh, Burlap the Cashmere was the okay. name of the, it was a Christian band, like early 2000s. Yeah. 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 So the whole like idea of the Bible being those basic instructions instead of something that we enjoy and find pleasure in, you know, whereas a lot of other people have talked about how much poetry and how much beauty is in the Bible and you, I mean, now you teach poetry. So did you, did you study poetry in college? I mean, is this part of your background or did you study theology more? I mean, you got an English 
literature degree, but from a, a college in a seminary? Yeah, my college degree actually is in biblical studies and history of ideas. It was more like a great books curriculum. Gotcha. And I didn't take many English classes uh, until the very end of my undergraduate degree. And then when I started my master's degree, and of course, on into grad school and stuff, that was all English. Okay. But most of my academic work has actually focused on on narrative. I've written mostly about fiction, but it was poetry. When I left uh, college and kind of got into the world of English departments and the world of literary studies, it just came gushing out of me. I, I was very fortunate. God gave me a fantastic teacher my very first semester of my master's degree who passed away back in 2017, may his memory be a blessing, a guy named Tom Lisk. Mm. And um, he was teaching a 20th century British and Irish poetry class. And it, I just very naively and maybe overly romantically tried to emulate some of the poems that we were reading in class. And I just brought them to him. And he just would always say to me, you know, this is do more. This is great. He just encouraged me. And I think in two years, there, I, it just, uh, in my master's degree, it just exploded out of me and poetry became uh, a very personal, spiritual and intellectual just mode of expression. Yeah. And it's funny because then I ended up really focusing most of my academic work on prose and on, on narrative. But um, in the last five or so years, I would say I'm reading as much or more poetry and teaching as much more poetry and even writing about poetry a little yeah. more than I have prose fiction. So it's kind of had a little renaissance in my life. Oh, that's so fantastic. Well, I, I mean, I'm a huge supporter of poetry. I started writing poetry when I was little and I still write it. I probably publish two poems a year, though I regularly say I'm a poet like C.S. Lewis was a poet, <laughs> just like not a high compliment, but um, it doesn't mean that I'm going to stop writing it and enjoying it as much as I can. But I'm not a a modern or an early poetry lover. Most of the stuff that I read, I mean, yes, I love some, I love some Herbert, some Milton, some Dunn. Um, but most of the stuff I do is like 20th century. So you've brought up Anne Bradstreet. And I think I've already told you, like, I'm going to act mostly as a student because when it comes to these 17th century poets, that there's like these hurdles for us. So could you tell like, why did you choose Bradstreet and maybe tell us a little bit about her story? Absolutely. So let me start with her story because okay. Two, the two main reasons I wanted to talk about her with you for this specific podcast come out of the story of her life. Okay. And I'll just say too, like, I'm not a 17th century expert. I think we're, our fields are pretty similar in terms of our academic expertise. I'm a 20th, 21st century uh, American lit scholar. But what I've learned in teaching my field in the last 10 plus years is how important the 16th and 17th centuries are to understanding the very idea of America around which my field of study kind of orbits. Interesting. And so okay. I think if I had to go back and do it all again, our, our spouses would would kill us both, you know, but I bet I bet you would go back too and do it again if you could, Jessica. Yes. If I had to go back and do another PhD, I mean, it would be in probably 16th, 17th century, early modern England becoming New England, like that time wow. period is now like one of my obsessions. Um, so I'm not an expert in, in this, in this time period either, but Anne Bradstreet just really has come to speak to me in the last few years. She was born to two really fantastic, uh, Christian Puritan parents in England early in the 17th century, like 1602, 1603, somewhere around there. Uh, her dad actually was a steward to an Earl, which basically, you know, think about English aristocracy, 
he was like the chief of staff to a really important political wealthy figure. And so he was extremely well educated and, and where they lived on, on the kind of Earl's estate, uh, the Earl of Lincoln had this huge library. And so this is one of the first reasons I chose Anne Bradstreet for this podcast was because her father tutored her in the classics, including the classical languages. And so similar to what I know you really enjoy doing and what one of the things you want to do with this podcast is think about how reading old books can give us maybe a different kind of perspective on our current reality than only reading contemporary things. Yeah. Well, that's also Anne Bradstreet's story. Her father was training her in the Greek and Roman classics. She was learning Greek and Latin and stuff like that from a very young age. There's also the obvious auto, uh, the obvious biographical interest, the fact that she was a, a woman mm-hmm. who was being educated in a way that not a lot of women in her time uh, would have been educated. But that emphasis that her father had on teaching her these ancient texts, and then you see them show up in allusions you know, throughout her poetry, obviously like reading the classics gave her a vocabulary and a set of concepts for thinking about like her own struggles with the world that she was living in the 17th century, religious, mm-hmm. um, uh, physical, like illness, like all kinds of things that she struggled with, separation from family, you know, her romantic love for, mm-hmm. for her husband, uh, how to think about nature, uh, motherly love, uh, family, se- se- I mean, all this kind of stuff. Uh, she had this classic literary vocabulary and imaginary that gave her ways of seeing and reading and interpreting the world around her that she wouldn't have had otherwise. So that's one of the first reasons that uh, I thought of her for the podcast. Um, so then, so she's raised by her dad. Well, let me, and, let me just break, let me break in for a second. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I want to hear more of her story, but I'm fascinated about her background just a classical education because of course, yes, that's what I'm drawn to. Like if I had to go back in time and do a PhD, it'd probably be the classics. Like I, this is now that I'm looking at, you know, Simone Weil, Dorothy L. Sayers, Dorothy Day, they all had this classical education in which they knew Latin and Greek and it influenced what they were looking at the contemporary problems and how they were responding to them. And yes, of course, you know, that's something that I feel like is missing from our current culture that everyone is like, wait, how do I mother? And how do I love? And how do I educate? And there's answers from the past. We don't have to just like blank slate and just pick up a Christian living book or pick up a a contemporary how-to. I mean, there really is ancient wisdom that we can draw on that's going to give us much better answers. So, So thank you for sharing that part of her story. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, she is a fascinating figure. There's so many things that are exceptional about her. I mean, a lot of that comes from the fact that she's a woman and who would not have normally been afforded this, these kind of opportunities. Um, but I think it was part of her parents' Christian conviction mm. that motivated them to want their daughter to be educated, to understand the world in which she's living. And, and as a result, you know, she's pretty young. I mean, it's a little different than our times, but she's 16 when she marries a man named Simon Bradstreet. He was about, I think he was 25, and he was a colleague of uh, her father's. And uh, it's really, truly a marriage of love. I mean, that's borne out throughout her poetry, especially the later poetry that she writes. Like uh, a really famous poem, To My Dear and Loving Husband, starts with these really famous lines, you know, if ever two were one, then surely we. If ever man were loved by wife, then thee. I mean, and the whole poem is just, is beautiful. Uh, Anytime they're apart, she often memorializes the pain of being separated from him in verse. So they, they're in love, they get married. And then just a few years later, 
uh, her family, both her parents and her, her husband, they come with John Winthrop on the flagship Arbella of the, the Puritan yeah. exodus to New England to form the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And this is one of the reasons why she ends up being periodically separated from her father, from her husband. Both of them become very important figures in the Mass Bay Colony. Her father serves as governor a couple of times. After her death, her husband actually will become one of the governors of the colony. So frequently they're traveling even back to England on mm -hmm. colony business and separated from her for long periods of time. So that's kind of her context. You know, this classically educated woman in the very heart of the Puritan zeitgeist, leaving England, coming to New England, part of this adventure of John Winthrop in the Massachusetts Bay calling to establish what he famously called a city on a hill and that sermon, a model of Christian charity. And she's right at the heart of that kind of 1630 puritanical uh, context. So that's where she comes from. So the other reason, right? So the first was how she looks back to the classics to give herself an imaginary and a vocabulary for dealing with the pain and suffering and the joys and triumphs of her own time. And then the other reason that I chose her is because she does go through so much anxiety and anguish and loss and pain and, and, and beautiful things, triumphs and hopes throughout her life. And what I find so important for her at her time, that's a good model for us at our time, is throughout her poetry, she gives these beautiful visions of a hope that is not dismissive of suffering. She's able to say, you know, the earth will revolve. She loves nature imagery. The earth will revolve, right? The seasons will turn, right? It will be summer again. It will be light again, but never in a way that is dismissive of the suffering in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, we live in a world much like hers, you know, living with the, the aftermath and the ongoing fallout of a pandemic, dealing with political and religious strife, even within the United States of America, let alone around the world. I mean, we live in a world torn. Uh, by sin and death, just like Anne Bradstreet. And it's a difficult line to walk. How do we search and aspire to hope without kind of minimizing the real suffering of what mm -hmm. people are going through? And I think that's the other main reason that she came to mind for me, because she's a good model of how to do that. That's fantastic. And so was she uh, a mother as well as kind of the role she played in the colony? She was a writer, a mother? Yeah, you see it in both her autobiographical writing that she leaves for her children and in the verse itself. In fact, she she wonders a few times early in their marriage. Um, she, it takes her a, a few years to conceive and have a child. And she wonders about this aloud in her writing. You know, why couldn't I conceive? Why couldn't I have a child? So people who have struggled with conception and dealing with the, all the emotional and physical uh, hardship that comes with that, they can find you know, solidarity and solace. And also, you know, they can sit with their pain some, I think with Bradstreet, yeah. but then also hope. And then uh, after a few years of marriage, all of a sudden she is able to conceive and she has eight kids. No, oh, wow. Um, which she writes about in, in a couple of really famous poems. I think she had four boys and four girls, if, if I remember correctly. Okay. So yeah, I mean, her role as a, and her life as a mother is really integral. It's integral to her, her verse. It's integral to her theology, mm -hmm. uh, certainly integral to like, you know, her family dynamic and her social life. And uh, that's another reason that she's so important. I mean, she publishes the first book of poetry by any New England writer, period, man, woman, it, 
regardless, right? I mean, and so you kind of, you can't, yeah, you kind of can't ignore any of those roles for her. Well, and did, but she didn't publish it, right? I mean, um, okay, so I have some mm-hmm. vague knowledge of Anne Bradstreet. I remember reading the author to her book, which is one of the poems I would love to to get to read out loud and kind of walk through with you uh, so you can help us enjoy it. And I remember this idea of like treating the book like it was her child, but at the same yeah. time, somebody else midwifed it into yes. existence. Okay. So I remember yeah. some of this. We yeah. That's, I think probably the perfect part of her story to jump, uh, jumpstart us, to transition right. us into a discussion of the work because, uh, so in late 1640s, a brother-in-law of hers, he's a Reverend uh, John Woodbridge. So he goes on a return voyage to England. And you can tell from reading the early verse, it's not like she wrote it just only like privately for a diary. It was circulated just amongst some of her family. Mm-hmm. You can tell like she's talking to an audience at times in, in the early verses. And so she's writing to her family. But Woodbridge takes a handful, I think like a baker's dozen of these poems, some of them longer, with him on this return voyage to England, goes to some bookshop in London, writes a preface to the poems, and has the book published all without her permission uh, or without her knowledge or permission. And he titles it, uh, The Tenth Muse Lately Sprung Up in America, uh, referencing her allusions to the nine muses of Mm. mythology and kind of positioning her, Woodbridge kind of positions her among them as like the tenth one. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's it's a really cool illusion. But as you know from the poem, she has some mixed feelings about the poetry that she wrote, maybe only for a very private or familial audience, being published to the world and then potentially circulated everywhere. I mean, after all, we're still reading them today. Yeah. And so yeah. he actually spends a good bit of the rest of her life reworking some of those poems, but also I'm going to blank on the number. I mean, she the amount of poetry she wrote is just, um, it's unreal. It's impossible to even imagine how prolific she was. And then after, I think she died in 1672, and about six years after her death, a revised version of the book is published with some of her changes, revisions, notes, and additional poems uh, later on uh, in the late 1670s. So yeah, that's where we get this late poem, the author to her book, in which she is kind of on the page working through her feelings of vulnerability and embarrassment and all that for having her book published without her permission. Uh, Yeah, you can. And you can hear it in the poem itself. I just this one has always like if you asked me, you know, weeks ago, just to be like, what's an Anne Bradstreet poem? This is the only one that I really know by heart or like have any reference for. Uh, So let me let me read this poem aloud. But then would you be willing just to kind of walk people through what are we supposed to highlight? How do we practice reading this? Again, you've given us a lot of outline and enjoying the Bible about how to read poems like this. So hopefully you can kind of do that live. Sure. Right now. Okay, I'll start. The author to her book. Thou ill-formed offspring of my feeble brain, who after birth didst by my side remain, till snatched from thence by friends less wise than true, who thee abroad exposed to public view, made thee in rags, halting to the press to trudge, where errors were not lessened, all may judge. At thy return, my blushing was not small, my rambling brat in print, should mother call. I cast thee by as one unfit for light. Thy visage was so irksome in my sight. Yet being mine own, at length affection would thy blemishes amend. If so I could, I washed thy face, 
but more defects I saw, and rubbing off a spot still made a flaw. I stretch thy joints to make thee even feet, yet still thou runnest more hobbling than is meet. In better dress to trim thee was my mind, but not save homespun cloth in the house I find. In this array, amongst vulgars, mayest thou roam. In critics' hands, beware thou dost not come, and take thy way where yet thou art not known. If for thy father asked, say, thou hadst none. And for thy mother, she, alas, is poor, which caused her thus to send thee out the door. Wow, well read. <laughs> yeah, it's a, fa- it's a fascinating poem. I mean, it, you can definitely hear her voice, even if, you know, the Puritan language. I mean, for me, that's always what's hard about these. I, I want to take all the King's Jamesness of it. And yeah. I just want to be like, you ill-formed child of my brain. I mean, I always want to make it into <laughs> modern English. Yeah. I totally get that. There actually, there is a really fascinating article I read a couple of weeks ago when I was thinking about uh, prepare, when I was preparing for this, uh, and, and the scholar talks about how there's this debate regarding whether Bradstreet was more influenced by the Geneva Bible or the King oh. James Bible, and kind of this scholar's take on it was that you you see a lot more of that King James language that's yeah. unique to the King James versus the Geneva Bible throughout her work. So your your sense of it is exactly right. I mean, here she is, you know, in the middle of the 17th century, in the 100 years after the Reformation, where we're deep into the time of Protestantism, the the proliferation of versions and translations is starting to happen. There's mm-hmm. such a thing as people kind of like having their own Bible is 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 almost commonplace, you know, yeah. amongst at least the educated classes by this point. Okay. And you hear the language of King James mm-hmm. throughout. Certainly for us, you're right. That can make it a little more difficult. But in terms of like strategies for working through that, yeah. uh, a couple of things that, that you did when you were reading, I find really helpful. One is oftentimes with these um, kind of uh, early modern English poems, they're mm-hmm. written after Spencer, Edmund Spencer, they're written after Shakespeare, they're written after Sir Philip Sidney and other really important figures. And so they use, you know, pretty rigid verse form. She writes a lot in I am's, you know, that unstressed stress, thou ill formed offspring of my feeble brain, because this is a, an important convention of her time. Mm-hmm. And one, that can be one of the things that makes it more difficult to process sometimes. So you did something really, really good when you were reading that I'll recommend to myself, to everybody, which is at least go through once or twice and just read it gr- like grammatically, like read to the commas mm-hmm. and the periods rather than stopping at the end of the lines. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that will help some of the plain sense of the poem click into place. Another thing that you can do, uh, which you were just doing too, is kind of like paraphrasing the opening yeah. lines, like put the lines in your own words. Yeah. Uh, I talk about this in, in the book as one of the main strategies for kind of getting into the world of a poem. Just kind of try to get a sense of basically, you know, what's going on by repeating it in your own words. So like you did with thou ill-formed offspring of my feeble brain. Uh, who after birth it's by my side remain you know you might say something like you know you you strange shaped child born from my head who (laughs) stayed by my side even after you were born yeah sometimes so i'll just kind of go through also (laughs) if you want to laugh out loud at yourself a lot you know (laughs) do it on the fly like that right right those are kind of like the first two things i would say like read for the the sentence structure rather than the rhythm and the line a couple times if you're if you're struggling to get a sense of what's going on and then also try to paraphrase it some put it in your own language mm. 
Yeah, I think also the what comes through in this poem is that she is being funny. And I tell my students a lot of times when you have this kind of couplet, easy rhyming, right? You get a sense of how she's being funny because almost every line sounds like the punchline came quick, right? right? You don't have to, like, you don't have to wait for like what's coming or there's no intrigue building the way you do in a drama or mystery or really investigating tough questions, um, right? It's like brain, remain, true, view, trudge, judge. Like there's this sense that she's trying to show the reader you should be able to just kind of stumble your way through this and get the joke each time, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that kind of construction at both the line and the sentence level is really central uh, mm -hmm. to this poem. So once you start to get that plain sense, oh, I see, you know, based on the title, I can tell that the author is like addressing her book here. Mm -hmm. And the book is represented in the poem as like this offspring or this child. Right. So we come back again, right? I mean, gender is really important to this poem. Mm -hmm because she's using this this metaphor of giving birth to yeah. talk about uh, the book and so the book becomes the child throughout the poem so once you kind of get that kind of central conceit of the yeah. poem and you start following through things start to make sense even as uh someone who has not given birth yeah. when i read the poem i i know what it is like to mm -hmm. be embarrassed by uh my kids if, even if you don't have <laughs> Uh, children, perhaps you have yeah. memories of embarrassing your family or of embarrassing mm -hmm. your parents at some point. It's a reminder that, you know, we're not always in control. That yeah. our kids are going to grow up and become their own people. And along the way, you, it's our job to kind of teach them how to do that. And here you have a kid who wasn't ready yet mm. to be sent out into the world. And yet he is kind of her, her emissary. Yeah. The book is, is sent out into the world, even though it wasn't ready yet, even though she didn't approve of it going out. And now she's going to be judged by by this book, by her rambling brat going around the world. Yeah. And uh, it was actually pretty well read in England and in the colonies. So once you kind of get a plain sense of what's going on in the poem, the next thing uh, that I talk about doing in, in the book anyways, is trying to get an idea of the, the central emotion. Because usually uh, a poem, though it might convey all kinds of important philosophical, theological, ethical, intellectual ideas, just like reading narrative prose or an argumentative prose or something like that, it typically does so through trying to evoke emotion in you. Mm -hmm. So usually emotion is first and then ev everything that we might normally compartmentalize as intellectual comes, comes after. And it's hard to really get the ideas if you're not moved by mm -hmm. the emotion. And for me in this poem, there's a couple of different points where the emotion becomes clear, where it reaches across time to me, all the way from mm -hmm. the 17th century, where it reaches across the difference of gender. I, I don't know what it's like to be a mother, even though I am a, a father. I don't know what it's like to be a mother. That's different. And even across time and space and personal experience across those differences, when she says something like, you know, your visage, your face was so irksome or ugly or bothersome or obnoxious to me that um, I wanted to kind of amend or fix the blemishes that were that were driving me to distraction. But the more I tried to fix it, like the worse <laughs> I made it. And that always makes me think of how many times I've been sitting in my office at lunch, you know, eating soup or something and I spill it on myself and I'm like trying to clean it off. And the more I try to clean it up, the worse <laughs> I make the stain. 
or you know when you get into a disagreement with uh, a friend or a spouse or or whatever and you know you're in the wrong and the more you try to fix it like mm -hmm. the worse you make it yeah yeah <laughs> um we kind of all know that feeling mm -hmm. and that's really the the central emotion here that feeling mm -hmm. of you know no matter how hard i try like it's out there in the world and there's nothing i can do about it now mm -hmm. it's a feeling of like helplessness of vulnerability of almost hopelessness mm -hmm. she feels like now it's out there and there's nothing i no matter how hard i revise these poems no matter how much i stretch the feet which is a beautiful yeah. a little bit of a play on words yeah. there, yeah. <laughs> being the measure of a poetic line um no matter how much I stretch the feet to make this thing run smoothly, mm -hmm. it's already out in the world and everyone's already judged me based on it. There's nothing I can do about it. Mm -hmm. And goodness, if I can't relate to yeah. that feeling of helplessness. And that's what a good poem is mm -hmm. for, to take something that we've all experienced it, uh, that we've all experienced and to reimagine it in some new and fresh way. It says to me, you know, Matt, you're you're not the only one who's mm -hmm. ever, you know, been embarrassed and had their business put out in the street, as mm -hmm. the kids say, you know, who's felt helpless and vulnerable and incapable of controlling the narrative of who you are and, and of your life. You're not alone in that. And that to me is very comforting. It doesn't try to make me feel better immediately. <laughs> it's like a yeah. good blues song. You know, sometimes it's OK to be sad. Right. Sometimes it's OK to be upset. And that's how she feels uh, in this moment. So well, kind of yet, a, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, and yet she's also, it's almost, it's also comedic, right? I mean, it's, it's, yes, these things are frustrating, but at the end of the day, like the book is still out there. There does seem to be some, there is some pride. It is your child. She does have some affection for it. It's frustrating that it's not perfect, but it's also a really good reminder that no matter what we write as writers and put out into the world, it's not going to be perfect. We can't fix every part of it, you know, um, run away from the critics because they're not the ones who are going to love you. But at the same time, hopefully, hopefully you find your place among the common people. Hopefully you, you find a place that takes you in. Um, even though we, she's, I don't know if it's mock modesty or real modesty of like, even though this is poor and I have a feeble brain, like it's what I could do. Well, you see that she doesn't shy away from verse moving forward. I mean, she uses a poem in this case. Yes. To kind of work through the pain, suffering, and joy. And I think you're exactly right to not take herself so seriously. Like she's able to elicit some laughter from herself and mm -hmm. from us as yeah. well with this image of the child, the rambling brat running around. I mean, the end, you know, it's got to be a, at least a little tongue in cheek because think about the time in which she's living, you know, a child with, with no father, a child born out of wedlock. I mean, there was some social taboo around that in, in yeah. our time today to some extent, but not nearly to the extent of, mm -hmm. of puritanical New England in the right. middle of the 17th century. And she says, uh, you know, if anyone asks who your dad is, tell them you don't have a dad. And if they ask who your mom is, uh, just tell them that that I was poor and that's why I had to turn you out. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's kind of this uh, perfect mixture of mm -hmm. sincere sorrow and frustration and also like throwing one's hands up and saying, yeah. well, it's out there now. Yep. Yep. And I think as authors, I mean, even if you're not a mother, you're an author and like you realize like this is, this is what you have to do. You have to let it go and let it go out into the world and it's not going to be perfect. Right. 
For sure. Yeah, and as and as and as a parent. Yeah, and as a parent, yes, absolutely. The metaphor is actually the flip side of the metaphor of the child for the book is thinking about the book being sent out as a metaphor for when you raise children and send them out <laughs> yeah. of the house and at some point they have to make the decisions for themselves. You can't make it for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's so good. Well, so we could spend definitely all day like walking through all our poetry. We only have, you know, five to 10 minutes left um, for the short attention span of most people. <laughs> so um, so where, where should we close? What should we read that is this beautiful by Brad Street to, to save in our memories? Maybe one more would be another famous poem called Here mm-hmm. Follows Some Verses Upon the Burning of Our House, July 10th, 1666. She had lived in a couple of different towns in Massachusetts Bay Colony by this time. And this is one of those poems that I think is exemplary of that idea of having hope without being dismissive of one's suffering and trying to align your vision of a good life with that kind of Christian virtue that comes from life being more than merely this, uh, this worldly, that it is both this worldly and otherworldly. So I could read this one. Sure. And then maybe we could just chat about it for a minute. Uh, So again, this is uh, something that happened in 1666. Her house burned down and then she writes a poem about it that was ultimately uh, published much later after her death. So it's called Here Follows Some Verses Upon the Burning of Our House, July 10th, 1666. In silent night, when rest I took for sorrow near, I did not look. I wakened, was with thundering noise and piteous shrieks of dreadful voice. That fearful sound of fire and fire, let no man know, is my desire. I, starting up, the light did spy, and to my God my heart did cry, to strengthen me in my distress, and not to leave me succorless. Then, coming out, beheld a space, the flame consumed my dwelling place. And when I could no longer look, I blessed his name that gave and took, that laid my goods now in the dust. Yea, so it was, and so t'was just. It was his own, it was not mine. Far be it that I should repine. He might of all justly bereft, but yet sufficient for us left. When by the ruins oft I passed, my sorrowing eyes aside did cast, and here and there the places spy, where oft I sat and long did lie. Here stood that trunk, and there that chest, there lay that store I counted best, My pleasant things in ashes lie, and then behold, no more shall I. Under thy roof no guest shall sit, nor at thy table eat a bit. No pleasant tale shall e'er be told, nor things counted done of old. No candle e'er shall shine in thee, nor bridegroom's voice e'er heard shall be. In silence ever shalt thou lie. Adieu, adieu, all's vanity. Then straight I begin my heart to chide, And did thy wealth on earth abide? Didst fix thy hope on moldering dust? The arm of flesh didst make thy trust? Raise up thy thoughts above the sky, that dunghill mists away may fly. Thou hast an house on high erect, framed by that mighty architect, with glory richly furnished, stands permanent, though this be fled. It's purchased and paid for too, by him who hath enough to do. A price so vast as is unknown, yet by his gift is made thine own. There's wealth enough, I need no more. Farewell, my pelf, farewell, my store. The world no longer let me love. My hope and treasure 
lies above. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful, especially because, as you said, she doesn't just move on from the suffering. She recounts it. I mean, that list of nor at thy table, nor pleasant tell, nor things are counted, no candle, nor bridegroom. Um, it just reminds you of all the things that a home is, that it's more than just the material there, that the material is a provision for what the home actually contains and what a home actually is. And she is definitely lamenting the loss. She doesn't move too quickly away from that loss. Yeah, that's right. She doesn't allow herself to say, oh, well, it didn't really matter anyway because my hope is in God. Mm-hmm. She reaffirms the fact that her ultimate hope and her eternal salvation even yeah. lies in the world beyond, lies in God, but at the same time kind of validates the pain and the loss. You see that in those rhetorical questions that she asks for herself there around like line 37, 38, 39. And did thy wealth on earth abide? Like, is that where you were storing up your treasure, you know, here on earth? Yes, of course, yeah. you know, the kind of the rhetorical question begs that rhetorical answer. And she's saying, no, right? my ultimate hope is in heaven. And yet here I'm, I'm sitting with this sorrow I'm, uh, to the point that I'm ready to write this poem. Like, I, I'm still wanting to sing about my loss, but all the while recognizing that my hope isn't located in this chest or this trunk or in this place where I used to sleep but in this kind of house that God is building for me in the world yeah. beyond. Yeah. And the poem in that sense becomes a prayer to move her from the place of fear. I mean, she begins it in silent night when rest I took, right? It begins with this. That's where it should end is this sense of silence. Like God is holding on to the night. She's in rest, right? There's this comfort and peace there. And then the catalyst of thundering noise, fire, fire. She, I mean, she's recounting all of it. She allows us vicariously to go through the fear and the concern and then later the loss and the lament. And, and when she asks those questions, she's asking them of herself as well as her reader. So that by the end, she's saying the world no longer let me, let me love. I mean, it's a prayer. Like, please, please, Lord, don't let me love those things as much as I did but my hope and my treasure lies above. I mean, there's just seems to be this begging, this requesting of God so that the poem actually transfers from narrative to lament to prayer. Yeah, it follows, I think, I think intentionally, like the model of the entire Psalter as a whole. Mm -hmm. And then even of many of the Psalms that begin with anguish or where are you, Lord, or some lament like that down into like the catalog of miseries and then ultimately towards hope. And though we might sometimes be tempted to see that as a pro- as a mere or, or simplistic progression, like we're supposed to move mm-hmm. from questioning God and lament and fear towards hope, leaving mm-hmm. kind of the questions and the and the fear and the laments behind. But it's repeated again and again and again and again. And I think you see that in this poem as well. You you put it so well, kind of the the progression through the poem, and she ends with hope and treasure. But I think without kind of minimizing the pain of the loss that she went through. Oh, that's so great. Yes. And I love that to imagine that this poem is a gloss on the Psalms, right? And then also, of course, the structure of the Psalms gave her a structure by which she can place her her pain and move that pain into a place of hope because of being formed by the Psalms and that reading. Yeah, that's really good. 
<laughs> that was really cool. Well, it's, you know, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I know that, you know, eventually you and I are going to meet in person and we're going to have a really long lunch where we just get to gush about all the poems that we love. But thank you today for introducing people to Bradstreet more. Hopefully people grab uh, collections of her verses. I mean, they're copyright free. You can just find them yeah. online <laughs> and really dig into them and read them themselves. <laughs>